Hi there, folks. Amid major liquidations, we're we witnessing the end of China's economic dominance. I'm Aaron Young. Let's find out. Now, streaming right around the world, this is Ticker Today. Great to be with you wherever you are joining. And we begin with the collapse of Evergrande, the property group that has caused fear in the markets of a major slowdown in China and also the global economy. Professor Tim Harcourt from UTS joins us, also the host of The Airport Economist is here. Great to see you, Tim. Uh, all eyes on the Chinese economy at the moment and so many uh, around the world saying that I don't think the West really understands the significance of what's happening at the moment. No, that, that, that's right, Aaron. I mean, the, the Evergrande collapse has been sort of on the radar for the last three years, but the, the, the recent announcements mean there really is there really are problems in the Chinese property sector. You know, they try to do this big transition from a nation of shippers to a nation of shoppers, moving from being the you know the engine room of the world, the factory of the world, to looking at domestic consumption and investment, and that's in a bit of trouble, and that's now starting to. I guess, provide a wake-up call to, to markets and investors around the world. What does it mean for countries like Australia that are so reliant on the Chinese economy, not just growing, but being strong and reliable? Yeah, it's going to be difficult for Australia in, in some aspects because we provide a lot of inputs into that uh, factory of the world. But on the on the other hand, um, a lot of um, Australia's exports in gas and iron ore, food and so on, has been based on the population growth, the growth of the second and third tier cities, the little country towns of, you know, 14, 20 million people. Um, and there's still a fair bit in the pipeline. But uh, I think we have to think, you know, really, really, really carefully about not putting all our eggs in one basket in terms of uh, uh, China's an export destination that, ha- you know, has been good for us in the boom times. We also see China and the idea of the status quo continuing because that is good for the Australian economy and and many economies around the world and also global peace has been the hope. When you start to see um, a bit of a flow and effect from things like Evergrande, how concerning is it that it will upend the Chinese economy that could impact the political system that could lead to, uh, I, I guess, the opposite of stability? I think that's right, Aaron. Um, of course, as you implied, the great hope was that as China embraced the market system that uh, it became part of the World Trade Organization and so on, that eventually democracy would follow. I mean, that, that hasn't happened uh, with the you know the pivot towards Xi Jinping when he took over the leadership. And uh, the fear is, is that if China doesn't have the economic prosperity that it's been used to, uh, then there might be more of a, you know, Military type exercise to get the people behind the behind the CCP. So that's the the big fear. Uh, on the other hand, you know, there's so much uh, investment on a on a grand scale that you can expect uh, without you know supercharging investment like uh, we, we has occurred in China over the last twenty years. There's still a fair bit of momentum for growth, and that should at least uh, you know keep people's minds exercised away from more geopolitical tensions. So we talk about Evergrande. Do you think we'll now see a downturn in construction in China? Is it just too risky? Is there the money? Yeah, look, I think this idea that you, you, you end up having, you know, second and third tier cities constantly. I, I remember when I uh, led an MBA class uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, in Chongqing and they uh, had 
in effect, we're building two CBDs and the Great Mall of China and these other construction sites. You know, there does there does become a limit, and uh, if you know the steam comes out of the property market and they find that they're building a lot of empty apartment blocks uh, around these you know great urban centres, then that that does that does have some dangers for the for the property sector. And Evergrande's a bit of a canary in a coal mine uh, in that respect. Yeah, but you also know that the relationship between the Chinese people and the Communist Party is keep us wealthy, keep us middle class, or get out. No, that's right. There's 300 you know, million middle class wanting a, a tertiary education in places like Australia. There's food security, there's energy security. Once you start to see that, you know, that prosperity a bit, a bit shaky, uh, people uh, can, you know, think of alternatives. You look at a place like Taiwan. You look like a place of, like Singapore, with you know, with ethnically Chinese people dominant, but entrepreneurial, uh, very, very successful in terms of technology and innovation. You know, there is an alternative China universe out there. And uh, ironically, as China's become more prosperous, uh, Xi Jinping and the regime have used social credit and using uh, using technology to almost clamp down more on the populace instead of loosening the shackles, which what many optimists you know, had hoped as China, uh, as China reached you know, new levels of economic maturity. Now, we've heard that the US president wants to decouple American trade from China. Trump threatens to do the same as well. Is it actually possible? Because the US policy, whether it's been Trump or Biden, has been pretty similar, get away from China. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, wishful thinking that um, you know you could deglobalize, you can put everything back in the United States. I think the reality is is that uh, globalization was has been reset. It hasn't been stopped in its tracks totally by COVID and the aftermath. And we're finding that China itself has become more dependent, for instance, on Taiwan uh, in terms of intermediate goods. We've seen the rise of uh, not only Taiwan but Vietnam and. Uh, Indonesia uh, as alternative places in global supply chains and Japanese and Korean investors have looked more towards Taiwan and Vietnam and Indonesia. So I think it's not that there's going to be uh, an end to globalisation. I think it's shifting and some of these uh, new emerging states, Vietnam, Indonesia, Taiwan, are now playing a a much stronger role uh, in global supply chains where China used to dominate all of them uh, a short time ago. Apart from the US, though, who else wants to try and decouple from China? We know Australia has been talking about it for some time, but also trying to mend relations with China as well. But who else, aside from the US, wants to try and decouple from China? Well, I think Japan's uh, obviously looking at other parts of Asia in terms of its own investment. And Japanese companies, the trade numbers don't look big uh, in terms of Japan, but the fact is that foreign investment comes mainly from from Japanese multinational companies around the region. Korea's got very similar thinking. Uh, India's got similar thinking in terms of their trade and investment sponsors around the world. And of course, the EU, uh, as well as the North Americans and the UK, are now rethinking their, 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 their strategies with respect to the Asia Pacific. And that's why People are looking for alternatives apart from China, and China itself has to think of it about its own dependence that it's got on Taiwan and, and some of the other uh, mm. lot, lot of other of, of its own uh, trading partners because of some of its domestic weakness. When a lot of countries in the West talk about decoupling from China, they often are referring to manufacturing, and there are two options: one is to either move it to somewhere else. We've seen Apple 
move to Vietnam, China moved to India as well. We've seen countries like Australia and the US say we need to bring back chip manufacturing to the United States or Australia saying post-COVID we shouldn't be too reliant on all of our basic needs being made in China as well. Where do you sit on both of those? Is it a mix of doing both? Um, and is India really a reliable partner? We're watching Modi and all sorts of strife over what's happening in Canada uh, about the murder of this man. Um, talk to us about India, because it's such a fascinating topic. We've heard former prime ministers like uh, Tony Abbott say that India is the future, and yet they're not quite as clean as we'd expect. Yeah, look, India's mainly, its strengths predominantly been in services and its young population. It hasn't been the, the factory of the world like China has been. The other thing about India too, Aaron, is that uh, China really relied on foreign investment, the apples of this world. India's got its own homegrown international com companies like Infosys and Tata and Dr. Reddy's Labs and so on. So India in some ways has got its own uh, indigenous multinational corporations while China's had state-owned enterprises. The other thing I should say is that uh, uh, I think the role of ASEAN will be very important. Uh, Prime Minister Albanese will be hosting the ASEAN leaders in Melbourne next month. Of course, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be covering in the airport economists. And ASEAN seems to be a very important player in the Asia-Pacific. If you take the two emerging superpowers of China and India to one side, it's probably ASEAN uh, as a collection of strong economies now playing a increased role economically in terms of trade and investment, but also, I think, geopolitically. Uh, so aside from India, which other countries do you think would do well? I mean, you've got Indonesia with more than 100 million people. Obviously, you've got Vietnam as well. But we do talk about stability of economies. If we're going to jump out of the frying pan, we don't want to jump into the fire, right? Well, that's right. I mean, I think that's why we think about as in uh, as, a, as a whole, because it's not, it's not one country. It's a group of you know, emerging economies, some of which are very, of course, very mature, like Singapore. And then you have a country like Vietnam that has a lot of the attributes that China has. It's got a very highly educated, highly skilled workforce and a, a natural uh, a natural capacity for entrepreneurship. So Vietnam's important. And you've seen the Albanese government put more stock on Indonesia because our relationship is really underdone compared to uh, uh, you know some of the size of the Indonesian economy that's quite domestic, domestically focused. So there's quite. Uh, I, I think most economists think you diversify as much as possible, and you don't, uh, as you put it, put all your eggs in one basket and just tip it into another basket. You actually diversify across the board, and including at home. I mean, putting everything at home also uh, has a risk of you 100% onshore. Yeah, well, let's talk about flipping it around. So uh, not so much about importing in countries like Australia from China. Let's talk about exporting to countries like China from Australia. Uh, can Australia diversify its trade and diplomatic, I guess, energy away from China? And if China stops buying on the numbers that they have, what happens to the Gina Reinhardts of the world? What happens to uh, things like the taxes that pay for uh, the huge economic spending that the Albanese government has been doing? Look, I think um, when you think about the region, you think about the big thing, which is energy security, and you think about uh, our gas and our iron ore, then you've got, you know, South Korea and Japan playing a big role there as well as, as well as China. So energy security is a big issue for all those Northeast Asian economies. Food security is big across the world. 
when you think about food shortages and crises in the Middle East and Yemen and so on, obviously food security is a big issue in the in the region and Australia, with its agribusiness strength, is uh, is an important place. And then in education and, and services, all those markets are mm. are important. So I think uh, in some ways the the economics of it is that because of energy security and food security in the world, as well as demand for things like education, it means that Australia has a number of complementary, uh, you know, trading partners, whether it be China, South Korea, Japan, uh, you know, Vietnam or the ASEAN states. And that puts us in a reasonably good position uh, if we you know, relied a little bit less on China than we have in the past. Tim Harcourt, always appreciate your time on Ticker. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron. Good on you. Do stay with us. We'll be right back after this. You're watching Ticker. We'll have more in just a few minutes. 